On this episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, we discuss the latest news in the ASC industry. We'll talk about the recent 2023 multi-state ASC conference and provide a retrospective on ASCA 2023 in Louisville, Kentucky. Welcome to the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, the longest-running podcast specifically focused on the freestanding ambulatory surgery industry. We would like to thank our sponsors, Surgical Information Systems, providing cutting-edge information solutions for surgery providers, Trivalence. Trivalence offers a comprehensive next-generation ASC solution that optimizes payment and supply chain performance, enabling actionable data insights, and Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies the nation's leading regulatory and accreditation compliance resource for ambulatory surgery centers. For more information about our sponsors, please visit our website at ASCPodcast.com. Welcome to episode 191 of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey for June 18th, 2023. We're recording from our studios in Spencerport, New York. This is Sue Cronkite, the Chief Researcher for the ASC Podcast with John Gailey and Operations Manager for Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies. We'd like to remind our listeners that the ASC regulatory environment is a rapidly evolving landscape, and the material presented in this episode is based on the most current information available as of the date of recording. As such, it's important to recognize that this information may be subject to change, and we advise all ASCs to stay up to date with the latest regulations and guidelines issued by their relevant regulatory bodies. And joining me today is John Gailey, the owner of Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies, and one of the most respected experts in the ambulatory surgery industry. With over 30 years of experience, Mr. Gailey has authored over 10 books on the ASC industry, and he is a sought-after speaker on regulatory accreditation and finance issues. Well, we're recording on the uh, Sunday after Mm -hmm. the uh, 2023 multi-state virtual ASC conference, which was held on June 12th and 13th. It was a, it's hard to say anything but a huge success. We had several hundred people signed up for the conference and uh, uh, it was sponsored by uh, five different state associations, the Massachusetts, New York, Pennsylvania, Texas and Virginia associations, and uh, want to thank those associations for helping us to uh, get the word out about the conference mm-hmm. and to and to uh, provide that service for free to anybody that was a member of that association. And then also the patron members of the podcast also got it for free. Um, so it was a two-day conference, virtual, using the same format that we always use, which mm-hmm. is uh, you know having a lot of interaction and uh, questions throughout. And Sue, so we just had so much fun doing it. It was really uh, quite an event. Plus, it was also nice that I didn't have to do most of the speaking, <laughs> yes. uh, which is always nice. When we do all these boot camps, there's mm-hmm. so much uh, speaking that's done by the by you and myself uh, involved in it. And here we had, uh, I think it was like uh, five or about six different speakers mm-hmm. during the, yep. those two days. Yes, they were. We had experts in in several different fields, so it was really it kept it very interesting. 
And, and new speakers, too. I mean, mm-hmm. though, uh, you know, some had been on the podcast before. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was such a success that we're already starting to plan the 2024 Multi-State Virtual Conference. And we expect many more state associations to join up. So if you are on the board of directors or the executive director for any of the state associations, we encourage you to uh, send us an email at info at ASCPodcast.com. The more the merrier, the more mm-hmm. uh, state associations that get involved um, with this, uh, the, the more we can get the word out. Mm-hmm. Or to reach out to your state association. And tell them you'd like, the, uh, like them mm-hmm. to join. Absolutely. Uh, we do anticipate doing some other multi-state activities, uh, some hopefully before the end of the year. So just want to give you a heads up on that. We don't have any solid plans yet, but uh, it is uh, definitely uh, something that is going to be uh, becoming a pretty popular part mm-hmm. of the ASC podcast virtual conferences. Mm-hmm. I do want to point out, too, that, that the multi-state conference was approved for up to 16 AEUs for people that had CASC and up to four IPCHs for mm-hmm. people that are CAPE. And I know, Sue, you are uh, trying to process the uh, certificates for all of the attendees. It's quite, quite a major yep. job, uh, given the number <laughs> of attendees we had. But um, And for those who missed the whole event, uh, we did record it. And we're going to make the recording of it available uh, also for the same 16 credit hours and four IPCHs um, in the future. So I just want to kind of give you a heads up that the recording is being processed and we'll, we'll give you more information about that as time goes on. Mm-hmm. We will send it. The people that attended and signed up previously um, will receive that recording just in case they missed certain parts. That's right. And then right. I... And they don't have to pay for it. Yeah, it's only people that uh, you know that's that did not attend the live conference that will have to pay uh, mm-hmm. the money, and it's still very reasonable three hundred dollars for uh, uh, for the two day recording of sixteen mm-hmm. credit hours. That's a lot of credit hours for uh, for that money. So again, I want to thank everybody that was involved in the conference, all of our speakers, all of the state association members that participated, and of course all of our faithful listeners. So let's uh, talk about some uh, recent news. CMS has indicated they will no longer be enforcing the vaccine mandate. So this was a, a big news. Mm-hmm. We did announce it, I think, in our uh, last episode, but uh, we still have not seen the official quality safety and oversight memo mm-hmm. to the state agencies where instructions are provided to the surveyors. I think you're checking every day. I literally <laughs> check every day, sometimes twice a day, and mm-hmm. I can't believe it hasn't been issued. But it is official because the uh, CMS did publish it in the uh, um, in in the uh, Federal Register, which allows it to uh, go through the normal processes. It mm-hmm. becomes official uh, regulation 90 days after uh, it is published in the Federal Register. But CMS has indicated, at least verbally, that it is uh, no longer going to be enforcing the vaccine mandate. I'm a little bit hesitant until I see the QSO yes. on it, uh, just because as a surveyor, that's what we use in order to determine whether to cite or not. Mm-hmm. But uh, we have been told not to uh, cite. And, of course... Follow your state regulations and all of that. That's right. The state regulations will will trump, of course, the federal regulations. And there's a new uh, law in Texas that addresses patient safety concerns that were brought up by the surgeon that um, was nicknamed Dr. Death. A lot of people listen to that podcast and and have heard about this. Um, The station KNAX had investigated after this case was over, and they found they were kind of looking to see if anything had changed. And they found that there were at least 49 doctors that were practicing in Texas who had had their medical licenses revoked in other states. And there was no mention of these issues in their physician profiles, um, their public profiles, which it was actually required by Texas law at the time that 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 would be in their profiles. 
Um, so partly in response to this investigation, a bill was developed which was signed into law on June 13th of this year. And here are some of the main points to that law. And again, this is in uh, Texas law. It is in Texas. Yeah. They'll prevent physicians who had their license revoked, restricted, or suspended for cause in another state from practicing in Texas. It's now a Class A misdemeanor to lie on medical license applications. And the Texas Medical Board must update the public physician profile on its website within 10 business days of being alerted to any disciplinary action taken against that physician. Now, this law will go into effect on September 1st, and although it's only in Texas, um, maybe some other states will follow suit because I know often you hear about when these terrible cases come out, you hear that they maybe lose their license or they're restricted, and then they go to another state, and they just kind of start over. And, you know, this will be at least one way of, of hopefully stopping that from happening. Well, and I experienced it in a lawsuit many years ago where, uh, you know, a doctor had come from one state to another state, and I was uh, involved in mm-hmm. the credentialing uh, uh, work on that. And, um, you know, the, the system just is so slow in, mm-hmm. in updating that information. And, you know, we ended up doing the right thing as the credential, you know, we're protecting the surgery center who had credentialed them. But, of course, we act upon the information that's in the profile, that's in yes. these profiles. And the more it's rapidly that information mm-hmm. can be updated, and I'm even talking about the National Practitioner Data Bank, for that matter. Which they had mentioned in here yeah. as well that, you know, people, It takes forever. Yeah. yeah. It takes yeah. forever to update it. Um, I think one a big takeaway I would say, take from this, Sue, is that we really have to take that process of going to your state mm-hmm licensing division and make sure you thoroughly read that report. Yeah. And and if there's other links in the certification mm-hmm. uh, that the person has a license, you know, follow those links through. Sometimes, like I know in New York State, there's a link to the Office of Professional Medical you know, misconduct. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you click on that, it'll give you a list of any of the um, uh, that doctor's uh, misconduct things, if there were anything in there. So mm-hmm. whatever your state it is, of course, there's 50 different state associ- states out there that have uh, uh, these websites, but definitely take the time, yeah. document it well in your credentialing, take credentialing seriously, I think. And if you have not listened to the Dr. Death podcast, Mm-hmm. Um, you know, definitely do it because it'll help you to understand how what can um, happen, what can happen yeah. and the importance. You know, why are we doing this credentialing? And mm-hmm. sometimes I, when I talk, especially when I'm doing um, surveys, you know, people say, well, we know these doctors. I, why do I have to go through this long mm-hmm. process of credentialing? Well, the truth of the matter is you don't always know these doctors. Yeah, and nobody nobody has it written on their face that, you know, like they talk about strangers and teaching kids about strangers and and it's the same kind of way we look at people we know they they wouldn't do this and, yeah. you know we expect them to look like a horrible person but you don't know they could be very charming people and they That's right. have done something wrong and obviously this is such a tiny minority but when something like this gets out and everybody talks about it and they get and there's a podcast about it it kind of it really builds mistrust i think yeah. in patients and you know anything we can do to stop that and make sure that it doesn't ever involve one of our surgery centers and hopefully stop the practice altogether if there's a doctor that's not doing the right thing. And our dear friends at MedPAC, uh, the Medicare Payment Advisory Commission, which is part of Congress, uh, it's an independent congressional agency that advises Congress on uh, issues affecting the Medicare program. So they issue two reports a year. Mm-hmm. I think we've talked about this a couple times before in the podcast. We always talk about MedPAC during our mm-hmm. uh, our boot camps because it's an important uh, source of a lot of information, background information on ASCs. And uh, during their June report this year, 
Uh, they issued two reports a year, one in March and one in June. Uh, and in June of this year, Sue, Sue was just joking that, uh, you know, my dear friends, I, the, the problem with MedPAC is they never make recommendations that are really uh, helpful to the ASC industry. So I, so I was being a bit was sarcastic. Yes. Um, <laughs> what a shock. So in Chapter 8 of their June report, which is uh, entitled, the section was entitled, Aligning Fee-for-Service Payment Rates Across Ambulatory Surgery, uh, ambulatory settings. Uh, so again, uh, before I get into the points, mm-hmm. um, MedPAC for a long time has been saying that, basically implying that surgery centers are overpaid mm-hmm. and that uh, they want to start uh, seeing an alignment of the payment. And of course, we are paid the least amount of, uh, you know, between the HOPDs and the ASCs, and uh, which which means that if they think we're overpaid, uh you know, you can imagine what they're probably thinking about hospitals um, and hospital outpatient departments. But they are on a, a mode right now of trying to align the fees, which means, of course, bringing the fees down to the lowest common denominator. Uh, so here's the recommendations uh, made in this or points that they made. Medicare fee-for-service rates often differ between HOPDs, ASCs, and freestanding physician offices, meaning OBSs. And this can encourage the movement of patient care to shift to the higher pain settings, which increases overall Medicare spend. In other words, you know, doctors and and uh, this, uh, hospitals want to shift to the that area where mm-hmm. they're going to make the most money. Uh, and they re- and MedPAC recommended lowering pay rates for 57 procedures in the ASC that are cor- currently most often done in HLPDs. In other words, uh, you know, trying to uh, force uh, that Medicare payment to go down even lower. And then they said that a site-neutral pay would have saved the Medicare program almost $8 billion in 2023. Yeah. And my question was, which I think you've already answered, it's not going to help the ASCs. It may hurt the hospitals, but not necessarily help ASCs. That's right. I mean, I think a site-neutral payment is going to put us on a, a, a level playing field with hospitals. But it will ta- take away that incentive for surgery centers mm-hmm. or for patients to come to us if the payment rates are the same. In the past, you know, their co-pays would be based yeah. upon the, the, the total rate, which means that perhaps they'd want to come to a surgery center. You get r- rid of that incentive for them to come to the ASCs because it's the lower cost alternative. Mm-hmm. And even uh, if they're paying you the same, you may be spending more for supplies because you don't have the hospital backing to buy as many supplies. At, at a reduced Although cost. there are different solutions for that, maybe. but it, So it really doesn't even come out fair in, in that way. Yeah. So, I mean, I think your question is fair. Does it hurt, help or hurt? And I think it all depends upon the perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, site neutral. I, I mean, I've always understood why hospitals should be paid more, mm-hmm. I, even though that, that that's a somewhat um, um, controversial subject. But I, I believe that they probably should be paid more because they're likely to take on more intensive yeah. uh, patients. But as we know, the number of patients that are, you know, have a lot of comorbidities is, is quite small compared to the total population of people that are coming in for elective procedures. And couldn't they base some of their, or maybe they do, I'm sorry, I don't know much about billing, but can they base some of their payments on, on the patient's comorbidity or is it always just strictly the procedure? Yeah, no, at the present time, the system doesn't take comorbidities into mm-hmm. consideration. So uh, it is purely, you know, a cost and, and, and location basis. But mm-hmm. I mean, I you know, I'm kind of neutral, uh, <laughs> kind of pardon the pun, neutral on site, neutral payments. I'm not sure, you know, I mean, as, as somebody would love to see ASCs continue to have a cost advantage here, mm-hmm. um, you know, perhaps, um, 
um, you know, keeping the rates at the hospitals higher will continue to encourage people to come to the surgery center setting. Uh, but we know that over the past, you know, 20, 30 years, that hasn't necessarily helped us. We can't get the message out mm-hmm. to Congress that you're going to save money by encouraging people to come to ASCs. Yeah. Uh, maybe the site neutral payments will finally force everybody to understand that there is a difference. I mean, I think at this point, we should be looking to ASCs as. Um, the site to go not just because of the price, but because mm-hmm. of the higher quality. Yeah, and, and if you are, if you are interested in more information on this, it was a very big report. There were several pages on you know studies that they did and different procedures that they looked into. So you know you can always look that up. The MedPack. And, uh, yeah, and, uh, MedPack, M-E-D-P-A-C. Just do a, a search for MedPack mm-hmm. report. Uh, and it is free. It's uh, as Sue said, you can download it and read it your your leisure. I use the report every year in order to update. You know, when we're doing uh, presentations for especially mm-hmm, the boot camps mm-hmm. on uh, statistics about the ASC industry, mm-hmm. they have a lot of great information yep. there. I did want to relate a situation. So during our uh, our twenty twenty three multi state conference, our speaker uh, Bill Johnson who was this, uh, the speaker on uh, life safety, uh, mentioned something that started a whole conversation during the conference about the 18-inch below sprinkler head rule. And uh, we've we've known for a long time that the um, you know that the life safety code requires at least an 18-inch clearance between the uh, tip of the uh, sprinkler head to anything surrounding it, so that the sprinkler head, when it goes off, will be able to uh, put a fire out. So you should you should be always monitoring any places uh, where uh, stuff is stored or anything for that matter uh, to make sure that there's always at least an 18 inch clearance. And uh, Bill, during the conference, mentioned that the that you know we asked the question, what happens if you don't have sprinklers in uh, a storeroom. And he said, well, then 24 inches is the rule. And uh, we did look into this, and we found out that the International Fire Code 312.2.1 actually does require a 24-inch clearance from the ceiling when there is no sprinkler head. So if you have a sprinkler head, you got an 18-inch clearance mm-hmm. If you ha- uh, from the sprinkler. If you don't have sprinklers, then you have to then you're required to have a 24 inch clearance. So Sue, you know, in many places I've w- looked at over the years, you have this line on the ceiling, mm-hmm. you know, where nothing can be stored above that. So make sure if you don't have sprinklers that it's tr- set at 24. 24 inches, not not 18 inches. So I thought that was interesting. So during during uh, Ask a Twenty Twenty Three, uh, we recorded three special episodes, uh, but uh, you and I really never had a chance to talk about our observations yeah. during uh, the conference. So uh, you know, because we were uh, we were in such a rush to get everybody else done, and you and I said, "Why don't we just talk alone?" Mm-hmm. Uh, first of all, so that you know, you and I would uh, wouldn't have any competition for time. <laughs> uh, but also, I thought that uh, you know, we we had an opportunity to kind of look into conf- or sessions mm-hmm. that uh, nobody else did uh, or that we didn't talk about during that. So we're going to take a short break and we're going to come back and we're going to uh, talk about a kind of a 2023 uh, retrospective on ASCA 2023. It's been a long day and the surveyor has just left and you are exhausted and looking at the list of items that you have to address. You wonder, how can I deal with this and still take care of my patients? More importantly, you wonder, how can I ever keep up with all of the regulations, standards, and accreditation requirements? How can I always be prepared for a survey and reduce my stress levels? Well, that's what Ambitory Healthcare Strategies does, day in, day out. 
we become your outsourced regulatory and accreditation resource. We can maintain your policy manual, develop your education programs, help out with fire and disaster drills, do your risk assessments, oversee your quality improvement activities, help run your quality improvement meetings and governing body meetings, and we can even prepare your monthly or quarterly financial statements and help you figure out where you are financially. We are a retainer-based service. We don't take ownership. We don't charge based on your revenue. We have one fixed monthly fee, and we can tailor your services to your exact needs. So whether you're looking for help getting over a survey, preparing for a survey, or looking for a long-term relationship to assist you with your ongoing regulatory and or financial needs, please give us a call at 585-594-1167 or email us at info at ahstrategies.com. That is info at ah-strategies.com or visit our website at ah-strategies.com. So ASCA 2023 in Louisville, Kentucky is over. Um, we're a good uh, three weeks, I think, after the conference, and uh, we're sitting here in our studios. Uh, Sue, uh, you and I didn't have an opportunity to talk mm-hmm. um, at, during any of the special episodes about our own observations, and we thought maybe we'll uh, we'll kind of do a whole uh, a part two on this whole thing. So, it's, Sue, why don't I start with you? Why don't you uh, reflect on at least one of your sessions? All right. Well, there was a there were a few I went to, and and really all of them were so good. So. Um, Corey Prisco, the administrator of Hudson Crossing Surgery Center, had a presentation, Build a Better Relationship with Your Medical Director. And she had talked about, you know, making personal connections to others and how that's so important. And she compared the situation, it was kind of interesting, to her marriage. She's an independent and capable, but... Um, you know, so she kind of didn't feel like she'd really need anybody, but her family, her husband makes her a stronger person. And she kind of related that to if you and your medical director can work together and rely on each other's strengths, you can really be a great team. And she really stressed it's important to have clear expectations of your medical director that often, you know, when you ask somebody to be the medical director, they might think, well, it's just a title. I have to check that box for regulations. Um, and that's kind of all you know, we'll just call me the medical director and I don't really have to do a lot of other stuff. So she said, really set your expectations early on. Maybe list out, you know, we want to have weekly meetings. Um, We're going to do goal setting. Um, We're going to keep having, you know, discussions about anything that comes up, keeping them confidential and maintaining respect for each other. You know, sometimes it's almost an adversarial relationship where you just feel like you're always trying to get your medical director involved. So, you know, make sure they understand what you need right away. Um, just lots of communication, formal and informal, just having, you know, kind of informal meetings here and there just to make sure you're always on the same page. Yeah, I, you know, it's interesting. This whole conversation seems to be coming to a bit of a head recently uh-huh. on the role of the medical director in the surgery center. We did a conference about um, uh, two years ago, I think, in uh-huh. 2021 for the medical directors. And, it, it, it uh, you know, we had about 13 people attend. It wasn't a huge uh uh, we didn't do a lot of marketing mm-hmm. beforehand. We are intending to to try it again uh, within the next year. Uh, but the purpose of that conference was to help 
medical directors understand their role and how they mm-hmm. fit into, especially during a survey. Um, and I remember over time, just like Corey, my you know relationship with my uh, medical my medical directors was often or sometimes contentious, simply because we mm-hmm. were, you know, they were always very busy. I was trying to make sure that we were meeting all the requirements, and I felt sometimes like I was the one that doing doing all of his paper. His well, mm-hmm. in my case, it was always a male. I felt like I was always doing his paperwork for him, and um, and, and I, I think uh, Corey's comments here. I, I didn't attend the session, but your your notes on this I think are, are very uh, are very good. I think her her advice was uh, very um, useful. You know, mm-hmm. for those that are trying to really make this more effective. And, and indeed, as she indicated, often the medical director uh, thinks that it's just a title that they can mm-hmm. check off on. But yeah. it really does involve some important work and responsibilities and potentially yes. liability, you know, if you were to get into a legal situation. And I think a lot of times they're the ones that can address any issues with the doctors mm-hmm. because, you know, it's that peer-to-peer thing. So it really is important Um you know, maybe you don't grab the first person who's willing to be the medical director. I know sometimes it's a case where you just really need somebody, but, you know, make sure it's the right person and they're going to respect you. And with our different centers, we really see a difference that it makes to have a really involved Mm -hmm. and caring medical director, even if they don't always agree, you know, with each other, the administrator or the DON, if they're respectful and they have the best interest at heart, then it really makes a big difference. And and in, in the quality of the care at the mm-hmm. center as well as uh, their compliance. Yeah. Uh, Sue, you attended then a session, uh, Conversations About Mentoring, which mm-hmm. I moderated actually uh, with uh, a friend of ours, Michelle George. She's been on the podcast in the past, and she is the vice president of clinical quality for SCA Health. And as I said, uh, her the title of her session was called Conversations About Mentoring. So what did you take away from that? She was a great speaker, and John, you were a good moderator once you yeah. realized that you had to moderate because <laughs> a little bit there of confusion. was all this discussion of who's going to moderate, and then we looked it up, and well, John, <laughs> it's you, but he was there and ready to go, but she was really good. You've known her for quite a while, quite enough, but yeah. I, this is the first time I'd heard her speak. Um, she discussed the importance of mentoring. Most of the attendees, she had asked at one point, you know, who considers themselves a mentor, and very few people raised their hand. And she rephrased it as, have you ever taught someone how to do something that they didn't know how to do? And then all of a sudden, a lot of people realized, okay, I kind of have have been a mentor. Um, She stressed that the benefits go both ways, that the mentor and the mentee both gain something. And it's really important to be a good match. She distinguished between the informal and formal. Now, the informal mentor relationships usually are a good match because they just kind of happen naturally. You know, you meet somebody who who you kind of relate to what they're doing or you think, oh, I'd really like to be you someday. And, and, you know, then you that kind of naturally happens if they agree to be your mentor. Now, formal or official mentoring relationships might not be as good of a match, but they do tend to increase diversity and inclusion more than the informal one because somebody may, you know, your boss – at work may tell you, you know, you're going to follow this person. And maybe it doesn't quite feel right, but maybe there are two people that would have never worked together otherwise. So that can be a good way, good thing in its own way, too. Um, to be a good mentor involves more than just strong knowledge or experience in a certain area. She said you should be enthusiastic or you should find somebody who is enthusiastic and patient, but able to provide honest feedback in an effective way. So they really have to be able to give constructive criticism. Um, also, be willing to see the mentee grow and possibly move on because, um, you know, she mentioned that sometimes people are sort of like um, information hoarders or knowledge hoarders, and they really don't want to see people 
do as well as they're doing or possibly, like she said, moving on. But most of the time, if if you've got somebody who's really up and coming and really willing to learn, they're going to be a great employee for you. But they probably will eventually move on. Yeah, I, I think that that's such an important point. I, I, as I'm listening to her talk, mm-hmm. I, I was thinking the same thing is that we often – find people that, I mean, we know one of the issues that we have in our industry is these knowledge hogs. Uh, you know, people that want to keep all that information because mm-hmm. they think, think it can maintain power that way. Yes. Or that's just their personality. And and they don't make great mentors. So mm-hmm. we have to be careful about, uh, or, yeah. you know, if you do have a relationship with that sort of person, make sure that, you know, you're, you know when it's time to pull away from them. Yeah, it's a different skill than just being good at their in the their job career. itself, yeah. Um, and sometimes your supervisor can be a good choice, but one, they have to be willing to lose you that you may move on. And also, a lot of people aren't going to be comfortable bringing problems or mistakes to talk over with their supervisor because they feel like it could be punitive. So, yeah. you know, it, it depends on the situation. You know, so I found it interesting that one overriding theme uh, during this whole uh, conference was mentoring, education of uh you know, staff, you know, succession mm-hmm. planning, things like that. I'm, at the end, I'm going to talk about my the, the one session that I, I wrote extensive notes on uh, succession planning. But it was an interesting overriding theme and very indicative, I think, of what's happening in the industry. And it's certainly one of the flows of conversation and topics that we've had mm-hmm. uh, in the podcast over the last year. And actually, she had mentioned, I didn't make notes on this, but I was just thinking about that. Or she'd mentioned that Michelle Obama had been a mentor to Barack Obama because they had been matched up. And I think this was a formal one. I think the yeah. professors had put them together. And, and she was a year said, ahead of him in, yes, in law yes. school. Yeah, She'd said, obviously, that took a different turn. <laughs> and <laughs> well, but Probably yes, one that, uh, you know, we would not encourage in the AC <laughs> industry here. But uh, we certainly understand those things happen. And then uh, Lori Rodericks, um, who is the Director of Clinical Services for Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies, um, talked about improve patient satisfaction in your ASC. So Lori did a great job. Anne had prepared the slides, but she was unable to make it. So Lori filled in, and she, and she did do a good yeah, job. Yeah, our uh, uh, Ann Geyer, who uh, yes. just retired, actually, yeah. April 30th. I don't know if we actually celebrated that yet, but uh, Ann Geyer, <laughs> uh, our dear, dear friend who's been on the podcast many times and, of course, yeah. is one of our primary speakers, mm-hmm. uh, was scheduled to do this presentation and turn it over to Lori when she had uh, to, uh, to bow out. But. Yeah, and she will still take part in some of yep. our boot camps and and that kind of thing. So she's not, but she's just stepping back a bit. Yeah. Um. So there was a quote that she had, um, unknown who came from a happy customer tells a friend, an unhappy customer tells the world, and I think yeah. we're all aware of that. We talk much more about things that make us unhappy sometimes than we do about if if we get good service. It's kind of like ah, oh, we just expect it. Um, more specifically, according to the White House Office of Consumer Affairs, an, an unhappy customer or patient tells 9 to 15 people or up to 20 people. Um, remember, with all the online tools and social media, this can be even more now. I mean, they could just blast Good. out a lot yeah. of bad news. Um, 76% of consumers look at online reviews before choosing a business to use, and I assume that applies to healthcare. Um, she pointed out all the steps along the way that can leave either a good or a bad impression on the patient. Sometimes it isn't even the actual procedure that makes a patient unhappy or dissatisfied with their care. It could be small things like the receptionist smiling or not smiling at them when they're greeting them. Um, she talked about what, you know when you're on the phone, try smiling because it's you know people can sometimes hear that on the other end of the line if you're you know have that welcoming voice. 
um, when the person calls for pre-op or for financial issues, you know, really try to make sure they're a friendly sounding person and and respectful of, of the patient. Also make sure the financials are explained as well as they can be so the patient is prepared and doesn't feel blindsided. Um, preparation or managing expectations is important in all aspects, um, whether it's waiting time, whether the family will be allowed to come in, how often the family will be updated. The more they can know what to expect, you know, the, the happier they'll be, even if it isn't how they would like it to be, at least they know it's coming. Um, people are really watching now for infection control activities. So just um, as they're just waiting, you know, L'Oreal's makes the point, they're laying on the stretcher, probably looking up if your ceiling's dirty. Um, they're kind of watching people walk around. If they seem like everybody seems rushed and flustered, it's really going to affect them if they don't see people washing their hands, you know, all of that. And does the patient feel important? Did everyone introduce themselves? Are they smiling? Are they taking the time to allow for questions? When you're having to type stuff into the computer, you know, make sure the computer's positioned so you're also facing them. You know, you, you don't want to be typing into the computer and, the, and then your back is to the patient. So top five reasons for patient dissatisfaction. And she kind of said, hint, it's all about the waiting. Yeah. <laughs> wait time in waiting room, wait time in the exam room, promptness of returning calls, waiting for tests to be performed, like for your transfer to, to the OR, and waiting for test results like GI screenings, biopsies. Um, some interesting statistics that she gave. Some nurses spend 33% of their shift interacting with technology and only 16% on direct patient care. Just another sign of how EMR has uh, definitely, uh, I mean, EMR has so many great advantages, mm -hmm. but if all we're doing now is spending time in front of that computer terminal entering information, that's less time for them to interact with the patient. Yeah, and again, just making sure you, you at least seem engaged, you know, right, that you're right. at least looking at there's just little tweaks looking you can do just to be sure. Looking at the patient instead of the computer sure. screen. Yeah, okay, yeah, let me put this in, but don't. Yeah. Turn your back. If your state staff is able to address and fix an unhappy patient's complaint, 70% of those patients said they would return to the center. So even if their mistake is made, it's not too late to fix that and practice. I guess you would call that turning lemons into lemonade. Huh? Yes. Two-thirds of customers are only willing to wait on hold for two minutes or less. So you don't really I think I'm one of those, yeah. I definitely know. know one of the two-thirds. <laughs> and how to increase patient satisfaction. When a patient arrives, greet them right away. If on call, if on a call, just put it, the call on a short hold. You know, don't leave them on for long, but at least be able to say, oh, you know, let me mm -hmm. put you on hold. Okay, hi, I'll be right with you. Um, make eye can't contact, chat with the patient while doing the other task when it's safe. You know, not if you're getting medications, obviously. You have to, you know, some things require your full attention. Um, making sure they're comfortable, a warm blanket, positioning with the pillows, raising the head of the bed. Um, Lori had said even offering to hold the patient's hand if they're, you know, if they're open to that. When the patient seems frightened, whether it's with an IV, a start of anesthesia, you know, especially some older patients probably, mm -hmm. you know, they, it might be comforting. Take your patient satisfaction survey seriously and address those issues as they come up. You know, it's funny. I, I when you mentioned that uh, Lori was mentioning, Lori and I are very good friends. Of course, mm -hmm. we do surveys together. And one of the comments she always makes, uh, and if you know Lori, she comes across sometimes as this like a uh, tough nurse. You know, one of the one of those that uh, you know that you don't always feel not necessarily uh, is a touchy feely, but she definitely she's is. So, and and one of the things that patient. she's always yeah. said to me after coming out, or often says to me after mm -hmm. coming out and witnessing, uh, you know, a patient interaction, a uh, patient-nurse interaction, says, God, all I want to do is reach out and hold that patient's hand. Yeah. And I think 
you know, in my interactions over the years with nurses, it's it's that that was so important. I know you as a nurse, of course, you were dealt with pediatric patients. Mm-hmm. You uh, you had to do that. I mean, yeah. it was almost a it was in your job description almost. <laughs> but I think as uh, as patients get older mm-hmm. and as nurses treat older patients, they don't realize how important that interaction is. So yeah. even in yeah. a surgery center, even in a elective procedure here, that that one on one contact so important. Yeah, make them feel like they have that advocate right there that. That they can turn to. So then, then we had to get into the new, uh, new and interesting <laughs> topics that we've never had to talk about before in the podcast: medical and legal marijuana. Yeah, very, very interesting, <laughs> thought-provoking talk. Salvatore Puccio Esquire of Garfunkel Wild. So we talked about you know marijuana in the workplace. Marijuana is still listed as a Schedule One controlled substance under the Federal Controlled Substance Act. Approximately 38 states have legalized medical marijuana and up to 21 states permit recreational use. The difficult thing for employers is proving that someone's under the influence at work, um, if, if it seems that they are. So testing is not very useful because it doesn't prove it. Current all use, it does, yeah. it, you know, now that it's not illegal, it just means, you know, maybe you smoked something on the weekend or yeah. a week before, two weeks before. It's not as useful as, uh, you know, testing for uh, alcohol uh, use, like for a, example. Yeah, breathalyzer, yeah. so you know you're yeah. currently. Um, but it can at least be part of the process if you suspect someone is using it at work. So you must, if you have, if you think you may have an issue, you must be consistent with your enforcement of whatever your policies state regarding zero tolerance or allowing accommodation request. Because some people, I mean, I don't think so much in the healthcare sector, but, you know, if people are using it for certain health conditions, maybe. But um, it was interesting as you talk through the process of determining impairment, there's not one defining factor or test. You, you have to document any signs um, on a reasonable suspicion observation report. And that can be the smell of marijuana. Um, if you see somebody smoking, but like he talked about one case where people were seen in the parking lot passing, you know, yeah. something back and forth. And they said, well, it was a cigarette. So odds are it wasn't because that's not usually how you smoke a cigarette. But that was just one thing they had to note because um, they really couldn't prove it. Um, bloodshot eyes, unusual behavior, those kind of things. And if you get enough then hopefully you can, you can have some backing if you do need to let the person go. And you can have a workplace impairment recognition expert or WIRE, but there's not very good guidance on to what this entails. He said it's just, you know, it's kind of, it's one of those rules that you can do that and they can be trained, but they really haven't come out with anything yeah. very specific. But employer and employee protections differ by state, so always consult with an attorney if you have any questions you know, about what to do with somebody that, that you're concerned about. And, of course, uh, they were talking about the employee uh, side mm-hmm, of this. We also mm-hmm. still have a lot of concerns about patients. Yes. And that, that was not a topic of this conversation. But do keep in mind that your uh, anesthesia department should be really, mm-hmm. you know, keeping up to date with the questions, even your pre-op nurses, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and, and kind of insisting on patients being um, uh, upfront about any drug yeah. usage, uh, recreational, legal, illegal, yeah. it doesn't matter. Well, um, just remind them, say, okay, well, it, if we don't know what maybe you've been using, we, we may not provide effective anesthesia. You right. may feel you may have more pain than we want you to have. Or, or there might, might be, be more complications you know, as a result yeah, of us not yeah. knowing what you had had. Yeah. yeah, we've already seen that actually start to occur in some of our incident reporting in those states where you know, uh, recreational use is legal mm-hmm. is that we are concerned about some, some uh, you know, outcomes that have already started to pop up that are uh, contrary to what we uh, expect mm-hmm. or want. Uh, so, uh, yeah. you know, make sure your anesthesia 
anesthesiologists and your nurses. Again, I, I think the next year, hopefully, there'll be a session on you know mm-hmm. patients' um, use of marijuana and, and how we uh, we deal with that in the surgery center setting. Yeah. And then I uh, actually, this is one of the first sessions I went to, if not the first session. I went to one on succession planning, put on by Kesia Norling. She's the administrator at Northwest Ambulatory Surgery Center. Uh, you know, what was interesting, Sue, is she um, her session was a story of failure. And uh, I think the courage of being able to stand up in front of people and tell you, you know, this didn't work for me uh, is just as compelling mm-hmm. as a story where you talk about success. Uh, so she talked about she, how she was a clinical director and administrator for uh, less than 18 months during the COVID. So COVID was a, a, a problem. There was over a 55% turnover in her area. And the administrator hired uh, their best friend as the director of nursing. And, you know, so this was happening after she had uh, moved on and after she had already mentored these people or uh, helped them with the succession plan. And what they found is that the uh, the administrator and the DON who had uh, uh, been uh, good friends would actually start to fight in front of their staff, which created mm-hmm. a lot of uh, uh, hostility within the organization yeah. and, and also certainly didn't uh, make it feel like everybody was of like mind. So a couple lessons that she learned from this is, you know, don't promote the clinical director to administrator just position just because it's convenient or they, they want it. I think we have to be very careful as we are uh, looking at promotions here. And, and we find this a lot right now where we have a, um, a challenge um, in trying to find somebody to be that interim. Because, you know, you mm-hmm. can't go a day without a new director of nursing. So be very careful about who you choose even to be an interim. Uh, director of nursing, or for that matter, administrator. And don't underestimate the time it takes to replace an administrator that has been there for years. And this was part of her personal story is that, you know, she thought that she was going to be able to uh, train this new administrator to take over for her. And she had been in that position for a long time. So she was very upfront about the mistakes that she had made as she was trying to transition this. And she was really made a, a point about how she had personally grown as a result of this mm-hmm. this failure. Unfortunately, her failure meant that she had to come back and resume that position. <laughs> yeah. uh, so it was almost like she was penalized for her, mm-hmm. her mistakes. She learned so much. Uh, during that uh, that period of time, and, and mm-hmm. it was great to have her speak about this and some of the lessons that she learned, uh, you know, going through this. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of times you do almost learn more from your failures, don't you, sometimes, yeah, than, yeah. than your successes, and it's good when we can can learn from somebody else's so we don't make those same mistakes. And we know from science, too, that that mm-hmm. actually is a very no- well-known fact, is that, you know, for every success in science, there's m- way many failures out there. So, um, but I think the the biggest takeaway I had from this is, you know, even the best laid plans always don't, don't always result in a, in a perfect Mm -hmm. outcome. Uh, but that, uh, planning for succession, being ready for this, she's already planning for her next retirement, Mm -hmm. uh, from this industry. And, uh, you know, she knows that it's going to take quite a bit of time and that she has to work very closely. Uh, I think one of the biggest takeaways I had again, is this whole concept that just be so careful about people you put into leadership positions. Positions, mm-hmm. And be very careful about uh, understanding that when you move into a leadership position, um, you're no longer uh, – you can't be the friend of the people that are mm-hmm. – you know, that you uh, are now leading. That's a tough one to, to deal with because you always want to be a friend. You always want to have friends. But mm-hmm. I'm just looking through your notes here where it says add leadership discussions to the performance evaluations. Which yeah. makes sense because they might be, just like with the mentors, they might be really good at their job. They seem like, wow, you're, you're the best nurse here. You're going to be a great leader. Maybe not. Maybe, you know, you have to work that through. Like you've always said, there's different skills for management, different skills for leadership. 
And so as you're talking to people and evaluating their performance, just kind of feel them out on, on, you know, how you think they would be as a leader. And know, put them in positions, you know, of not, not of a lot of a, mm-hmm. uh, not a lot of risk there to see how they handle uh, mm-hmm. those uh, potential leadership positions and then be prepared for the future. Yeah, and probably how other staff feels about them. Right. You know, just as you're taught, you know, kind of pay attention to the, the way other people react to that yeah. person. Would they be able to lead them? Well, Sue, overall, I, you know, in our retrospective here, I, I had a lot of fun during ASCA 2023. Mm-hmm. I, uh, you know, it's three weeks afterwards, and I am still suffering from the 10,000 to 12,000 steps a day that you and I had to take <laughs> uh, to get back and forth uh, uh, from there. I I, I, I'm well, not sure I want to do that again. Well, we got moved up to a, a very nice hotel, but it was a little bit farther. I yeah. thought you were going to say you're suffering from all the good food that we oh, ate. Oh, I did, yes. Because I was going to yes. mention that, too. Yeah. Lots of good food, but I thought, well, it, that's not supposed to be the highlight. But <laughs> it, it, it was <coughs> And just seeing so many people all in person yeah. again, it was really nice. It was good. And this is the first you time know, you've been back our to the conference, since mm-hmm. the, uh, to the ASCA yeah. conference yeah. since the pandemic. And we just want to thank all of our uh, patron listeners, uh, all of the, the people that listened to our three special episodes. I think that mm-hmm. is a record for us. <laughs> three special episodes from there. So uh, if you liked it, uh, send us a note, drop us a note so that we know that you uh, want us to continue doing that. So let's take a short break, and when we come back, we'll talk about some upcoming events. And in this segment, we provide an update on upcoming topics for the podcast, our upcoming virtual conferences, and upcoming speaking engagements for John and his staff and any other events in the ASC industry. So the Arizona Ambulatory Surgery Centers Association annual conference and exhibits is June 22nd to 23rd, 2023, coming up right away Mm -hmm. at the JW Marriott Camelback Inn Resort and Spa in Scottsdale, Arizona. The Florida Society of Ambulatory Surgical Centers Annual conference and trade show is July 19th through the 21st, 2023 at the Lowe's Portofino Bay Hotel in Universal, Orlando. Ohio Association of Ambulatory Surgery Center's annual education conference and exhibition is September 19th to the 20th at the Hilden Polaris in Columbus, Ohio. I was informed I'm not going to be speaking at the conference, mm-hmm. but we will be there uh, doing a, a podcast from there as well as, of course, having a booth. Yep. The Idaho Ambulatory Surgery Center Association's annual conference is September 21st and 22nd at the Hilton Garden Inn in Boise, downtown. And don't forget about our upcoming boot camps that have been announced at least. Uh, We have the July Administrators Boot Camp, July 11th through the 14th, 2023. It's virtual, of course. And our August Business Office Manager Boot Camp, brand new. We have never done a Business Office Manager Boot Camp before that, of course, will also be uh, virtual. And that'll be held August 8th through the 11th, 2023. And uh, for more information about these boot camps, and it's not just that four-day section, uh, you know, session that we do uh, virtually, but there's uh, many other benefits to being a a member of our boot camp. So for more information, visit ASCPodcast.com. And also, don't forget about our recorded events, all available on ASCPodcast.com. We have a credentialing conference, which is going to be updated sometime later this year. Mm-hmm. Uh, we did, we still have the fall 2022 finance and accounting conference for those who uh, need finance and accounting uh, credits. 
uh, the conditions for coverage conference, the medical director conference, and of course, we still have or we do have on-demand director of nursing and administrator boot camp conferences. And we also want to remind everyone to become a patron member of the podcast and help support us. For $25 a month, the, uh, the patron program, also known as ASC Central, is an exclusive membership website that provides a one-stop ASC regulatory and accreditation compliance operations and financial management resource for busy administrators, nurse managers, and business office managers. Resources include you know, some of our virtual conferences, links to poli- and links and policies and procedures, forms, drills, discounts, and other services, etc. And, uh, and of course, the most famous part about it is our weekly drop-in sessions currently on Fridays at 3 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. So thank you for turning, tuning into this episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey. We hope you found this discussion informative and engaging. If you did, we encourage you to share it with your friends and colleagues in the ASC industry. And don't forget to hit that subscribe button so you never miss an episode. We'd also like to give a special shout out to our amazing team who, who make this podcast possible. Our sound editor, Susan Cronkite, our executive producer, John Gailey, and our dedicated research team, Jenna Alvarez, Judy D'Ambrosio, Alex Borneman, Zach Caloritis, Amy Durbano, Lori Rodericks, Kathy Foti, Donna Macchio, Ann Geyer, and Diana Powell. We couldn't do it without them. Our music is provided by Media Sushi and Mike Noah, and the ASC Podcast with John Gailey is hosted on Podbean and is available on all major podcast platforms. We look forward to bringing you more exciting discussions and insights in future episodes. Thanks for listening. This episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey is sponsored by Surgical Information Systems, Trivalence, and Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies. Surgical Information Systems provides cutting-edge information solutions for surgery providers. Trivalence offers a comprehensive next-generation ASC solution that optimizes payment and supply chain performance, enabling actionable insights. Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies is the nation's leading regulatory and accreditation compliance resource for ambulatory surgery centers. For more information about our sponsors, visit our website at ASCPodcast.com. This podcast is an educational and operational tool and is not intended to be a comprehensive resource for all rules, regulations, and standards that an ambulatory surgery center must meet. The advice provided should not be considered as, nor does it constitute, legal advice or opinion. When reviewing specific situations involving legal and regulatory issues, attorneys and other professionals should be consulted. This has been a production of Eden Group Development. All rights are reserved. If you are interested in advertising or sponsoring the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, please email us at info at ASCPodcast.com. We would love to hear your questions and comments. Please email us at comments at ASCPodcast.com.